It's bad and bullshit. Welcome to the Bad and Bitchy Podcast. I'm Erica. And I'm Amy. And it's been a while. It feels like it's been forever. Part of that's my fault. I was sick last week, so um, we didn't get uh, an episode off. But it's also summer, so we're kind of slowing down on the production side uh, all throughout summer because we want to enjoy our summer too. And I know you guys do. Uh, so Amy, you were at an event put on by the Hill Times on Wednesday night, specifically regarding race. Can you tell us about that? Yeah, the Hill Times and CPAC's uh, The Democracy Project held the panel on on Wednesday, last Wednesday uh, on the topic of race and politics with MP Selena, with uh, Rose LeMay. Uh, she's the CEO of the Indigenous Reconciliation Group, who is really rad. Um, and then uh, some uh, some other fellow who you may or may not know is a uh, Harper era operative uh, conservative man by the name of Ali Khan Velshi and uh, bringing bringing the other uh, perspective on some of these issues. So it's kind of interesting. You got to hear our uh, lovely managing editor at the Hill Times, um, Sherelle Evelyn, uh, you know, pose questions like is our system is our political system a racist one um, mm-hmm. and those kinds of questions that rarely get asked mm-hmm. um, you know I think the conversation could have been a, a lot more on the radical side but um, uh, I think the fact that it happened is, is also really important too I I understand the need to open conversation um, I just hope we don't leave it at the is our country racist Mm-hmm. Piece and actually delve into some of the nuances and intricacies and history because there's a lot of history that the average person just is not aware of. And even, you know, people who are involved, we're not aware of. And I think that in this space, it's a lifelong learning kind of space. Anyway, um, so we're just going to get into it because we got a lot to cover. Uh, so <laughs> it's pride weekend. Um, actually it's pride month. I think this weekend was Toronto's pride. Um, last weekend was Hamilton. So Hamilton police in their, in their peak 50 cent pettiness and frankly, violence at pride Hamilton is what they showed Yellow vest protesters and other bigots forced their way into pride with weapons and shields and physically injured numerous people. Hamilton police, who were slow to act, blamed organizers for not inviting them to pride. We would have had people in the crowd pretty much the whole time, said Chief Eric Gert Wednesday. We have to respect the request, too. It's kind of a no-win situation where you're asked not to be there and when then and then when you're not there, how come you weren't there? So I guess where I'm coming from, Amy, is that there's so many levels of bullshit to the statement because, number one, you're not victims. And number two, we know the history of police and pride or else we should know the history with police and the LGBTQ2 plus community, given that that's the reason pride exists. Mm-hmm. So... 
Yeah, I mean, I think this is a um, unfortunate but very illustrative reminder that um, Pride is a protest, um, that it is um, still radical to be out in the streets, uh, displaying um, your pride, being honest about who you are in open spaces, um, and all of that is a radical political act every time that happens, but especially at Pride when it's done en masse. And as beautiful and as celebratory as Pride often is, it is always, there's always, um, you know, like there's a huge personal risk to a lot of people when they do that. And, you know, there's not the same kind of safety for LGBTQ plus people that there is for everyone else, you know, um, in it. I don't, you wouldn't see police saying, you know, we weren't invited to the Canada Day parade. We were just wa- marching the perimeter. So therefore we couldn't break up the fights that happened in the middle of the parade. It's like, well, no, you know, you were there. It's, it's almost like a deliberate act that they choose not to break up these fights, um, that they protect, that they do this bullshit, both sides nonsense. And then they wonder why they weren't invited. Um, they, what they do and how they police is a form of violence. Um, even the other day at Toronto Pride, because Toronto Pride involves a number of events, Trans March, Dyke March, and then the main festivities, which right. are today while we're recording. And there were protesters, again, um, people, not Pride, not Pride um, participants, but, you know, fascist groups, yellow vest type folks. Um, and, and other, there are a number of, you know, uh for lack of a better word, like some zealots who come from the States and across out of town who come to attend pride, um, to make moral, to take moral, so-called moral stances against pride and come and protest at pride. And, you know, there was an, a clash at a pride event yesterday in Toronto and Toronto police were choking, you know, pride participants and, and pushing back uh, against them instead of going to the other side of the street and kind of pushing back there and, and, you know, folk, there's video on, on Twitter of, of a, you know, a woman saying, well, you know, I just want to, um, you know, cry, like, yeah, just like looking across the street or, or walk, walk away and, um, Actually, you know, just kind of getting roughed up. Right. So it's just. Yeah. So um, the this has been tweeted about uh, over the weekend. Uh, the uh, an account called Mexi said, quote, Toronto police literally choking and roughing people peacefully protesting neo-Nazi bigots holding a hate rally. I was hit in the face asking why I couldn't cross the street. For our safety, never felt so unsafe. And, you know, I, I find the interesting part of this, too, is that white supremacy, neo-Nazis show up, and the police are harassing the anti-neo-Nazi protesters. And we're seeing this time and time again, especially at events that are um, for marginalized communities. And especially since marginalized communities usually don't have the best relationship with the police. Let's put it that way. So, like, there's so many. I, I find that pattern, that's becoming a pattern more and more. Toronto police, Hamilton police. There was another incident somewhere else in Ontario. I can't remember. But the fact is, is that the neo-Nazis come out. There's protests against the neo-Nazis. 
And the police don't do both sides. They mm-hmm. definitely target the anti-neo-Nazi protesters. Yeah, for sure. And it's so funny because they're they're still investigating what happened in Hamilton at Gage Park. And essentially the, what happened is that they're the, the yellow vests and, and proud boys and that you know, fascist group of folks who have regular protests at City Hall then wanted to break in and do the Pride event. But it's like wild that the police are still saying, and at last they checked, still running the line of, well, well, we're investigating to see what happened. And we still don't know, you know, what sparked it all. And it's like, well, pretty sure, like, you know, fascists moved in on a Pride event. So, like, that sparked the cause it. is pretty clear yeah. <laughs> that people weren't going to tolerate that shit. But that seems, like, so, like, hard to believe for police who whose main job is to kind of uphold white supremacy in a lot of ways. But and I don't think they can, like, appreciate that. But it's so funny. No, it's not funny. But we're seeing this in real time, this protection of white supremacists by the police by politicians, okay, by, you know, political operative. I remember Rena Curran on um, Power and Politics defending the yellow vests, saying that it's the media who's casting them as racist. But maybe there are a few bad apples. And that's the other thing I'm tired of, this few bad apples Mm -hmm. thing. It is not a few bad apples. This guy at the Toronto Police choking a woman like literally choking people okay this is a guy who apparently is on the sunshine list so our tax dollars are paying for our own brutality and that's what's like that is another place of gross that i i i just i just i don't know i don't know and i'd like to know to be honest where these good cops are Everybody says that, oh, but it's only a few bad apples. There are good cops. Where are they? Because good cops are really starting to be a unicorn. Yeah, I mean, it, it, it's interesting. Um, you know, the, this whole, the way that they've managed to spin this bullshit around into being like, well, we, if we had been invited, it's like, well, if you had been invited to the parade, you would have been marching and hopefully like, and like, that's not the same as doing your actual police work, which is like, <laughs> yeah. Which, I mean, I also, like, I mean, you know, right? Like, these are two very different. It's just so petty. And the fact that they, they're they so <laughs> invested in making their role in Pride proper and, like, getting a place there and somehow legitimizing themselves and pinkwashing what they do is, like, such a big part of their concern right now that they haven't actually done any community. But they haven't even turned their mind to why people would be upset. They don't even understand the basics. And, like, the whole way they've handled this criticism of how they weren't able to, like, quickly shut down uh, this protest before it resulted in actual physical injury. Like, people were injured and could have been fatally injured um, you know, somehow they still managed to turn it around and make it into a PR thing about how they weren't invited. Like, that's wild to me. That is wild. But uh, you see, like, it, Toronto police can't stop talking about how they're excluded. Um, and then where was it that Ford ended up the other day? He went to, he went to a pride, like one, one of the prides that does allow police to march. Yeah. To make such a, to make a spectacle of the fact, like, 
well, look, look at me marching. But of course, he wouldn't deign to go to Toronto Pride, right? It's like that. Like people are so fixated on their own personal branding exercise. Yeah. Vis-a-vis pink washing themselves at Pride that they can. York Region Pride Parade. Oh, yeah, Parade. York Region Pride. Yeah, that's right. I don't even. That just. Ooh, in Newmarket? No. <laughs> no. <laughs> <laughs> Bitch, no. <laughs> so like, you know, I it just like case in point, you know what I mean? Like you just made you made the case, yeah, for why you're not invited because you just you don't fucking get the issues. You don't understand safety and un what safety and unsafety mean. Um, and it it's you prove the underlying point, which is like a lot of people participate in pride from corporations to politicians for their own self service. They're not actually there for the community. And yeah. nothing underscores that more than seeing po- the, po- the police services trip over themselves to show, the, you know, to show why they deserved an invitation instead of making the like instead of making themselves actually useful and responsive in their own day to day duties to the community or doing that community building like you're talking yeah. about. Well, I mean, like in Toronto, it still so felt like they spent I mean, it, it, I, I don't know. It's hard not to talk about um, uh MacArthur, the mass, not that we should be naming him, but the mass murderer, but like who, you know, was slaying gay men. Apparently nothing's changed. Brown and black gay men for for over a decade. And the police lied to the community, right? I mean, we've talked about this a lot. It's it's maybe a heightened example. It's the most raw and like disturbing example because there was just such flagrant disregard for the community's safety on the part of Toronto police. And those arrests happened last, like his arrest happened last year. Yeah. It's, it's not like there hasn't even been any healing. There's been no accountability for the police's conduct in how they, you know, inform the community. Um, frankly, they misinformed the community. They lied to people. They gave false assurances. They didn't investigate anything. And it wasn't until, you know, one of his victims was someone who was of maybe, means. Yeah. A mm. bit more of means was a white man. And then they finally started looking. And even then they were still, not you know coming clean to the community about who MacArthur was and what, what you know what they were weren't on the tra- weren't tracking and and how much work they uh, hadn't done like they'd slept on it for years right until, they did. until that last minute right so I have a question for you do you think with all because this this is um, I feel like a year where all of Pride is getting. Like it's like pride itself is being subverted um, in in a particular way this year. It's either the celebrations or I mean, we just had the three year anniversary. Is it three years of 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 the Pulse nightclub shooting? Oh, yeah. Um, you had in Boston the straight pride parade, which is just another. Totally. I mean, we can know, laugh I, yeah, at it. No, no. It's but like, yeah. there's this there's this this collection of 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 like white supremacy, overt white mm-hmm. supremacy happening at Pride. And I feel like this year for some year for reason, it's become heightened. I'm not saying it didn't exist. I'm just saying it just seems to be heightened this year. I'm not sure why, but my question then becomes, is it, is it time for the actions of the police? Do you think that... Um, it could be had in like a broader conversation now, like a real conversation instead of just 
just having that conversation in spaces that are not um well i think the conversation is happening pretty mainstream because the media loves fucking talking about police being banned or not banned yeah but i think we as a society have like a real fixation with policing we're obsessed with with, with order with yeah with good you know good governance or order good governance or whatever like that's not i mean that's the ethos of a lot of our society and a lot and there's so few people um who are who are in the main who are in mainstream commentary who could act who actually you know ascribe to the view that police are actually more harmful than good most people in power in positions of power and privilege uh, are already predisposed to favoring police yeah and they are the gatekeepers of this conversation in right. a lot of ways right? right so a lot of column pages are you know occupied with people kind of being shocked and, and like i guess that anyone would want to not allow police to march in the parade because so many people for to, for them calling the police you know permit patties of the world are mm-hmm. like comfortable with that yeah shit, right um or at the very least like even if they're not comfortable, like mm. even if they see police and they feel like, oh shit, okay, you know, I, I like they feel like they're in trouble, or right. like that, or at the very least, like okay, like this is serious, like but they don't feel in danger. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like, I think some people, I think most, I, I think it's fair to say most people feel a little nervous about police, mm-hmm. but it's it's still too radical a notion for people to think of policing as in itself being inherently dangerous. And everything we're taught from when we're young, right? Anything bad that happens, you take a babysitting class or you're in school, you know, something bad happens, you call the police. The police come and do demonstrations to children. Right. About, you know, if you see drugs, do this. Or if, you know, like the domestic PR violence ads are all about yeah. police. And, yeah. But, you know, it's PR, but it's also like that's how our society is structured. Right. Right. A lot falls onto police, off, like po- the police services to do. And we can't and for a lot of people, they can't conceptualize something different because they've never had to create a different reality because for more or less, they don't have police interaction or when they see the police, it's not involving them. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Whereas like folks like in the, you know, queer community and who have had to create their own community and their own form of protection and security exactly. and looking out for each other like yeah. the security kits they made at their Toronto Pride right. for one another that you know fucking John Case shitting all over you know those kinds of exercises of po- community um, like a, a different kind of security and safety like when, when people talk about safe spaces mm-hmm. you know it's become a joke now it's become a farce someone says safe spaces everyone walks it because oh nothing is safe and you know uh, oh, you're going to cry because someone said a comment that hurts you. The conversation of safe spaces starts started in queer communities from like having to create space separate in a way from from where pol- police presence is, where the the order of society that made it illegal for you to be who you are mm-hmm. uh, existed and create a society outside of that that was safe on, on your terms, right? And mm-hmm. terms that made sense for the community. So you know that was born out of necessity and there's a lot of creativity and and um like a different kind of of human empathy that's born out of that for everyone else who is not over policed and who is and for whom the laws of you know our society are like you know you can abide by them and not have to challenge it doesn't challenge who you are you don't you're not necessarily 
felt unsafe. Or right? if you do break those laws, you have a whole, a lot of leeway. Yeah. A lot yeah, yeah, of yeah, second exactly. chances. Well, and the police, yeah. like you're not actually police, so you right. won't even get caught, right? Exactly. Yeah. So, exactly. Okay, thank you. I'm glad you brought this up because people, people will, I remember being at, um, at an event and I said something about, um, it was a tech event and they were asking what bothers you about AI and I said, well, I'd like to, you know, not be um, racially profiled at scale. One of the people on the panel said that I understand what you're saying because their Chicago police apparently use um, some AI to and other police force, I think L.A. County, too. Mm-hmm. Um what they're doing is that they're using predictive policing technology. And basically what it does is it identifies communities that have, that are more susceptible to crime. Well, guess how they're tracking how they're more susceptible to crime is the presence of police. So police, so, so that even exacerbates over policing. Begets police presence. Exactly. So can can you imagine? Mm-hmm. Anyway, go on. Yeah, no, no, for sure. And I, I, I again, like I just think everyone, it, it's it's hard to shake this p- policing paradigm. It's in everything. You know, I have friends who have young children who make the effort of finding you know books for them that don't talk about policing or any like even ingest any kind. But like there are so many children's books and my colleague will be like a friend will be looking at library books that her kids picked up and have to take them away because there's you know a police officer who's visiting or like a police officer walking you know it's just like a benign thing that police are in everything but she doesn't want to like normalize that for right them. but it's hard it's an it seeps into everything it does um and you know yeah i mean i and sometimes i'm sure we all catch ourselves so like think of next time that you're in a slightly dodgy situation where you feel like even as a woman a little bit unsafe so once in a while I'll catch myself thinking like oh like I wonder if there are any police around like if something were to happen but then I'm like no like that's not really gonna help you like mm-hmm. or or I mean if it will like who knows right but it just like there's a lot that like we are looking like we were told to look for that it's like so ingrained it's like second it's funny nature. somebody so I have two so somebody asked me um okay, so if I can't call the police and I see a disturbance, who do I call? And I said, well, um, you could call the ambulance Mm -hmm. is one one way. Um, And she's like, oh, I didn't think of that. And I'm like, I just thought of that just now. (laughs) But the point is, is because even I, who am, I am by default suspicious Mm -hmm. of cops yeah i mean it's tough and even i had to like break out of that and say okay you're right holy crap and all the things that were going through my mind was that wow what do you tell people Mm -hmm. because it's so ingrained in us Mm -hmm. but it's not only ingrained in us that's the way the structure is no it's it's built that way but but also we're not we've been given no room to envision anything different right right, right. Um, whereas other communities have had to and like the reason Toronto like first of all I think the reason police eventually and corporations and all of these kinds of like mainstream things started to take hold in pride is because some folks in some folks got comfortable right there was like a certain place yes. for a certain white gay part of the community that like the gay lawyer 
like it became normalized right like to some extent in certain spheres and i think for some people they started to feel more safe yes and secure and part of the mainstream and And part of the power structure yeah and it wasn't in you know and the reason toronto police were on disinvited from pride and have been disinvited from prides across ontario and across other places it's because of question like like that's where the intersectionality piece came in right it was around carding and it, that the in twenty in twenty seventeen from you know Black Lives Matter Toronto that like brought on the the disinvi- disinviting Toronto police um, because there you know uh, and there's a greater complexity of which communities then are are also policed right so it's 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 um, like there yeah there's still a lot that needs to be, like there's still a lot of our thinking that needs to be disrupted about who is safe and who is protected and what the role of police is. So moving on. Uh, Premier Doug Ford shuffled his cabinet on Thursday. You know, the cabinet that's not working until basically November. But I digress. Ontario Premier Doug Ford unveiled a massive cabinet shuffle last Thursday. The three most notable shuffles are Lisa Thompson from Education to Government and Consumer Services, Lisa McLeod from Children, Community, and Social Services to Tourism, Culture, and Sports, and Carolyn Mulrooney from Attorney General to Transportation. (laughs) (laughs) You know that devil, like, emoji, the smiling one? That's me right now. I can vouch for it. Despite a year of devastating funding cuts under the Ford regime, including slashing Toronto City Council by increasing the size of his cabinet, by 25%, Ford also increases the ca- the cost to taxpayers. Ministers get paid $165,780 a year, about 49000 more than backbench MPPs. His, new, his seven new ministers plus their staff is not cheap because I, if, I'm guessing this works like the federal, like it does at the federal level where cabinet ministers get um, an amount apportioned to their office that's not included in their salary. Yeah. So they get money to run the office, basically. So can this shuffle save the sinking ship? Obviously, that question is rhetorical, but I I find it interesting that... um, all of these are demotions. Yeah, there's a number of other shuffles we just didn't yeah. include. A lot of people, a lot of people moved up from the back benches. Paul Calandra, who was like, "Is that guy still alive?" I didn't I totally even know that existed. guy e- existed. Um, yeah, um, I would like Vic to note F- they are all men. Bumped down. Uh, well, there were a few demotions. Like Vic Fideli got bumped down. Yeah, he Vic Fideli is yeah. a big is a was big a big demotion. one. Yeah. Um, there are a lot of no like no name entities, at least for the main like oh, for, for the average person. Sorry, there's one token woman. Ah, well, that's positive. There you go. There you go. But yeah, I mean, it's it's interesting because uh, Lisa Thompson and Lisa McLeod uh, have occupied a lot of our um, and Carolyn Mulrooney and Carolyn Mulrooney to a lesser extent, I would say. But but yeah, probably all three of them like just a lot of. Um, 
I think every bad, every mainstream bad policy kind of went back to their portfolios, whether it was the um, cuts to autism, like funding for families with kids with autism. Lisa McLeod. Uh, yeah. The sex ed curriculum, Lisa Thompson. Lisa Thompson. Um, you know, the, the notwithstanding clause. <laughs> right. True. <laughs> and an irony. I will never let yeah, anybody forget fair. And the iron, bullshit yeah, that is Carolyn totally. Mulrooney. And ironically... You know, they made such a big fuss about the size of Toronto City Council and he's throwing his cabinet. Whatever. I mean, I get it. Like, it's like just it's a transfer of power on top of the hypocrisy. Yeah, it's a a transfer of power. Plain and simple. Okay, good. Now. Yeah, it's true. That's actually an interesting way of putting it. It's like centralizing. It is. Giving more power to the provincial government, which. Because the most powerful city in like they don't have to worry about Ottawa because Ottawa has so many federal and, you know, sort of weirdness with it yeah. that Ottawa is not particularly a powerful provincial presence Toronto yeah, no, yeah. is a different story mm-hmm. so I mean all like he's just centralizing and consolidating his power I doubt I find that the fact that most of these people they're oh they're most of these people except one got promoted from the back bench and the one who didn't get promoted from the backbench was Rod Phillips, who went from environment to finance, which is another story. But anyway. And there are a few there are a few things I want to point out. Number one. This is m- what I saw. Lisa Thompson, Lisa McLeod, Carolyn Mulrooney, all shucked and jived for this administration the other person I want to point out is um, what's his name's uh, former. Oh, geez, I can see his face. Flaherty, Jim Flaherty, Christine Elliott. Oh yeah, Christine Elliott is another one. Um, these are all women. They were all sold to us as some sort of Doug Ford women's rights feminism bullshit, which was easy to see through. Um, they all participated in, I would say, the worst government Ontario has had possibly ever. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's up there. Mm-hmm. And def- I would, yeah, it, it's. I would say well, they were the faces yeah. of all of those. So he made women the faces of all of his bullshit policies. And those women shucked and jived for him. And now they're going to be remembered as some of the worst cabinet ministers in history. Yeah, totally. I don't know how they come back from this in terms of like rehabilitating their person. Because they're not their political careers and in a short while. I mean, look, Lisa McLeod has been around forever. I I think she could probably salvage something out of this, but it's pretty fucking embarrassing because under the last government, she was the one who was like, we've extended hours of, we've shortened the hours of of work on Parliament Hill to be accessible for young mothers. We think that she was like part of getting a daycare, like that kind of shit. She was like really playing up that stuff. I never really believed a lot. Like I believe that she cared about that because it affected her personally. Yeah. I didn't really believe her brand of feminism, but like she was, she tried to play that like I'm true you know I'm a bit more of a moderate like now you know I think she's she's gonna have a harder time coming back from that depending on how this all plays out but I mean yeah they've kind of blown their reputations in the first year and then that's gonna be it for them for the rest of the 
I mean, who knows? Maybe they can earn their way back up uh, in the next three years. I mean, I don't know. And I imagine part of it has to do with some stuff that's happening behind closed doors. People not being able to work with Doug Ford or people or or whatever else or maybe some some other combativeness. I honestly don't think it's because any of these people did anything wrong in Doug Ford's eyes because they have played the playbook like to a T and... He just cut them loose. Yeah. That's what he did. They became too politically polarizing because even though they're his policies, don't tell me they came up with those policies on their own. I don't buy that shit. Somebody who wants to centralize power like Doug Ford does, like we've already established, is not going to give the pen of policy to to his ministers. Yeah. Right? So my thing... It's a fresh coat of paint. Oh, for sure. Oh, for sure. What does this say about, um, well, let me not ask that stupid ass question because I think it's rhetorical and frankly, we're above that on this podcast (laughs) because I was going to say, oh, what does that mean for, for conservatives brand of feminism? Well, we know what the conservatives brand of feminism is. It's bullshit. I mean, I I will add, there's one other notable change from the cabinet. Uh, Jill Dunlop, who he had mentioned was the one uh, woman who's being uh, promoted. Mm -hmm. uh, Jill Dunlop is a backbencher. She's taking on a new junior portfolio, that of Associate Minister of Children and Women's Issues. Children and Women First. (laughs) It's kind of funny. It's like definitely a very like there's a titanic trope here about there women is, and children getting there, on the lifeboats first. yes and always and, and being inextricably <laughs> linked that's the other thing yeah so, but but it's interesting that they think there's a need to have a women's issues minister at all that that makes me they're think, like, losing women they're they're yeah they're cluing into that for yeah. sure they're losing women's votes they got rid of all the problematic women so to speak because apparently it was the other women giving women a bad name, not the man behind the policies, but whatever. Um, and then created this this new, you know. To be fair, though, I don't think people could trust either of the Lisa Thompson no, or no, no. Lisa McLeod to do anything. No. And it, I'm glad we don't have to. No, I'm like, glad they're yeah. gone. Don't get me wrong. I'm well, not, they're not gone, but they're well, demoted. But. I'm, glad, I'm glad they got the public... Yeah. Um, backlash of demotion of of the embarrassment of demotion i'm glad it especially happened to carolyn mulrooney i have a special hate on for her Mm -hmm. because she is exactly representative of this centralized oligarchy that we call democracy in this in this country why the fuck was she elected in the first place she literally rode into canada after not being here for like decades okay and then assumed her position in a cabinet. Yeah. And then you want to talk to me, but yet I need merit. Get mm-hmm. the fuck out of here. Yeah. I just. And she's a resume powder and a fucking liar. And she's never practiced law in a day in her life. So that just. Exactly. Yeah, that hurts. <laughs> and that it, I can only imagine. <laughs> but her last name's Mul- God, you know, I'm starting to look at Brian Mulrooney differently these days. Well, usually. But you know, more different than I used to. And only because, dude, you produce some duds, man. (laughs) So what do you think this junior minister of women stuff is going to do? Sorry, junior associate minister, whatever the fuck that um, is. Clearly a lesser position than all the other positions. (laughs) Um... 
you know what? I wouldn't be surprised if they somehow tie it into education. Like, I wouldn't doubt if they bring it, if they bring in like home ec classes for women or something. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like online, of course. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, but the women, children, like education kind of triangle seems to fit because it's obviously they think of women in the home first. Because I doubt it's going to have to do anything with labor, anything good. Yeah, it's definitely, I don't think it's employment related. No. I don't think it's about any sort of benefits. It's probably not about domestic violence, although it prob- it could be, but probably in a way that involves the police and other things. Yes. We don't like. Yes. Um, yeah, like, yeah, definitely not like career oriented. It's not childcare. Mm. Like, it's not that kind of women and no. children. Like, no. <laughs> you know, not like, what are all. they going to fucking It's going to be probably be around school, school choice or something like that ooh, 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 ooh. or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Can I just say that it's the conservatives that bring in U.S. policies and all the bad ones? We're going to end up with charter schools, aren't we? Yeah, we are. I feel like that's where we're going. Well, the new education uh, minister is a private school kid whose chief of staff is a homeschooled kid. Oh, good uh, But yeah, he's from St. Mike's. You know, St. Mike's, the ones that uh, rape students and their parents don't want the police to know about oh, it. Oh, in Toronto? And they don't want any accountability. Yeah, that's it. Oh, that story. The all boys oh, do school. Oh my god. I'm sorry, is this like way too candid? I feel like I no. also I honestly, I like cannot even pretend to like is have it, any respect for people who go to private school. Or I can't. I can't. I, it fucking offends me so much <laughs> that such a system exists. <laughs> and then this piece of shit Who's never had a public education, who's paid his way through everything, who has never like doesn't understand streaming or like grades that your parents don't pay for or like any of this shit (laughs) or schools that your parents don't pay, don't like lobby for either. Apparently, right? like I'm sure that like everything, everything in a private school, especially St. Mike's, like not not all private schools are equal, right? There are private schools that have cheap. (laughs) <laughs> tuition that are religious schools that may be private for other reasons have have different cultural practices fine but this guy literally went to like like a capital p private posh school you know oh. what i mean like it is like one of the like upper canada college or something yeah oh yeah it is like just one of those places right so it's it's it, i think it's totally different so is he gonna like how will he even be able to and relate or even understand or even have the degree of empathy of understanding what public education is like. He's never been anywhere near it. I. <laughs> Happy Election Day, everybody. Whenever that is. Uh, moving on. So um, last Wednesday or on Wednesday, June 19th was Juneteenth. Um, Juneteenth is the actual day of emancipation for the slaves because even though Abraham Lincoln signed the Emancipation Proclamation in 1863, it took two years for Texas to act right. Last week, the House Judiciary Subcommittee on the Constitution, Civil Rights, and Civil Liberties held hearings on the question of reparations. The bill discussed, H.R. 40, would task a commission with studying the continued effects of slavery and racial discrimination 
and make recommendations about what redress might be needed. The bill is also laden with symbolism being named after the unfulfilled 154-year-old federal promise of 40 acres and a mule to recently freed men and women. The bill has languished in the House for decades, first introduced by former Congressman John Conyers in 1989 and reintroduced every year until his retirement in 2017. And... The bill has been has since been reintroduced by Texas Democrat Sheila Jackson Lee. Calls for restitution for the descendants of the enslaved have been supported by activist civil rights groups and academics who point to a vast list of racial disparities, including the racial wealth gap, which shows that the median white household is 10 times wealthier than the median black one. I want to add that this has been a long time coming also because it is not just America. CARICOM, the Caribbean um, Economic uh, Pact, and I think it's an economic and political pact, has been um, lobbying for this in terms of their um, conversations with the British government too. So this is definitely something that's been, I like I remember hearing about this as a kid so this has been a long time coming um i also want to say that tanahisi coates had a beautiful introduction um and a, a, like a beautiful statement sorry uh it's about five minutes i encourage you to listen um to it it's great yeah, just to cl- yeah, he he was one of the witnesses at the yeah. committee. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, um, what I found, especially with his statement, is that he basically in five minutes laid out um, the the not the history of slavery, but the implications of slavery and how it basically made America an economic powerhouse. So. Federal institutions, um, long-standing institutions like Harvard Law um, and other places were built on the backs of slavery. He also went through, in you know, not only slavery but Jim Crow and what Jim Crow has done in terms of perpetuating the disparities of slavery. And uh, he also has a rebuke to all those people who say, well, it's not us. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it happened 150 years ago, which is actually not that long, by the way. It's, bas- it's basically a drop in the bucket in terms of world history. So it's not that long ago. But Vice wrote an article or somebody wrote an article for Vice. Let me not say Vice wrote an article that talked about how slavery itself continued well into the 1960s. We have prison populations right now that are being enslaved, mm-hmm. not, necess- not just being housed in prison, but actually doing labor for no money. If that's not slavery, I don't know what is. And guess, and guess who that disproportionately affects? 
another thing Tanahishi Coates talked about the difference, the wealth disparities between blacks and whites is not based on effort. It is based on state policy, redlining policies that were just a part of a, of a national housing policies that exploited and stole from black families. So I've talked enough about this um, in an intro. So go ahead, Amy. <laughs> No, I actually just to, I would just say if you could clip in the uh, I will clip it the, in. Yeah, because yeah. I just saw it. Like you, you could find a good. Clip oh in yeah. For sure. In fact, I'm going to I'm going to play a little clip. Yesterday, when asked about reparations, Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell offered a familiar reply: "America should not be held liable for something that happened 150 years ago, since." None of us currently alive are responsible. This rebuttal proffers a strange theory of governance, that American accounts are somehow bound by the lifetime of its generations. But well into this century, the United States was still paying out pensions to the heirs of Civil War soldiers. We honor treaties that date back some 200 years, despite no one being alive who signed those treaties. Many of us would love to be taxed for the things we are solely and individually responsible for. But we are American citizens, and thus bound to a collective enterprise that extends beyond our individual and personal reach. It would seem ridiculous to dispute invocations of the founders or the greatest generation on the basis of a lack of membership in either group. We recognize our lineage as a generational trust, as inheritance. And the real dilemma posed by reparations is just that, a dilemma of inheritance. It is impossible to imagine America without the inheritance of slavery. As historian Ed Baptist has written, enslavement, quote, shaped every crucial aspect of the economy and politics of America, so that by 1836, more than 600 million, or almost half of the economic activity in the United States derived directly or indirectly from the cotton produced by the million-odd slaves. By the time the enslaved were emancipated, they comprised the largest single asset in America, $3 billion in $1860, more than all the other assets in the country combined. The method of cultivating this asset was neither gentle cajoling nor persuasion, but torture, rape, and child trafficking. Enslavement reigned for 250 years on these shores. When it ended, this country could have extended its hallowed principles, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness to all regardless of color. But America had other principles in mind. And so for a century after the Civil War, black people were subjected to a relentless campaign of terror, a campaign that extended well into the lifetime of Majority Leader McConnell. It is tempting to divorce this modern campaign of terror, of plunder, from enslavement, but the logic of enslavement, of white supremacy, respects no such borders. And the god of bondage was lustful and begat many heirs, coup d'etats and convict leasing, vagrancy laws and debt peonage, redlining and racist GI bills, poll taxes and state-sponsored state terrorism. We grant that Mr. McConnell was not alive for Appomattox, but he was alive for the electrocution of George Stinney. He was alive for the blinding of Isaac Woodward. 
He was alive to witness kleptocracy in his native Alabama and a regime premised on electoral theft. Majority Leader McConnell cited civil rights legislation yesterday, as well he should, because he was alive to witness the harassment, jailing, and betrayal of those responsible for that legislation by a government sworn to protect them. He was alive for the redlining of Chicago and the looting of black homeowners of some $4 billion. Victims of that plunder are very much alive today. I am sure they'd love a word with the majority leader. What they know, what this committee must know, is that while emancipation dead bolted the door against the bandits of America, Jim Crow wedged the windows wide open. And that is the thing about Senator McConnell's something. It was 150 years ago, and it was right now. The typical black family in this country has one-tenth the wealth of the typical white family. Black women die in childbirth at four times the rate of white women. And there is, of course, the shame of this land of the free, boasting the largest prison population on the planet, of which the descendants of the enslaved make up the largest share. The matter of reparations is one of making amends and direct redress, but it is also a question of citizenship. In H.R. 40, this body has a chance to both make good on its 2009 apology for enslavement and reject fair-weather patriotism, to say that a nation is both its credits and its debits, that if Thomas Jefferson matters, so does Sally Hemings, that if D-Day matters, so does Black Wall Street, that if Valley Forge matters, so does Fort Pillow, because the question really is not whether we will be tied to the somethings of our past, but whether we are courageous enough to be tied to the whole of them. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Coates. I'm just reading a wild article in The Independent and like totally forgive my fucking ignorance. But apparently the UK paid slave owners reparations. Do you know about this? Yes. That's wild. It's not only the UK. That's so fucked up. And I think one of the things Ta-Nehisi Coates said uh, was that um, uh, they the pensions from Civil War veterans were still being paid into the 21st century. Right. So this idea that it's a bygone era, you know, we're so much better now is just bullshit. Right. Well, I just mean to say, yeah, slave owners got recompensed for the loss of slavery. Yeah. Property. Yes. Quote unquote. Uh, Because when slave ownership was abolished in the British colonies. So they paid out 20 million pounds at the time to compensate 3,000 families. And I think today, I mean, that that amount is astronomical. Uh, regardless, whatever the amount was or is, uh, that's just, like, uh, like, think about how fucked up that is. And yet we think that the idea of reparations is, is so, so radical. It's so radical. When in fact. We can't afford it. We shouldn't be held responsible for what our foreparents did. Um you're living off of it. Apparently, David Cameron's family was one of said beneficiaries <gasps> of, of British reparations. That I did not know. I'm sorry. I derailed this. I don't know why we're no, talking no, about no. slave owners. No, Fuck no, no. slave owners. No, 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 talk no, no. about people who actually no, I, deserve reparations. But no, no, this no, no. But I my think, fucking mind. I think, no, no, no. It's not, it's not sidetracking it. 
you brought up a really good point that even I forgot because I was horrified. And then I was like, oh, yeah, white people. I'd repress that shit. too. Yeah, I mean, I did. I repressed it. I do want to I do want to kind of I made notes. So let me just go. You read your thing and I'll go through notes. I'm done. Okay. so um, this is also the 400th. This year is the 400th anniversary of the first African slaves brought to America. 1619, I believe, on somewhere in North Carolina, Plymouth, I believe. Um, Or was it Chesapeake Bay? Anyway, uh, what I found interesting in terms of the opening remarks by by um, uh, Representative Cohen who was chairing this subcommittee, he said the Constitution gave a disproportionate power to slave states. So slavery is not just about slavery itself. It's the fact that the American Constitution was built on it, Mm -hmm. was written on it. So the Constitution gives disproportionate representation for underpopulated areas. So the way um, the electoral maps and rep- and house represented con- congressional maps are is that under underpopulated areas, so let's say you're in Wyoming, um, gets more representation for their population than New York would. And the reason is, is because um, they they didn't ostensibly they did not want a place like California or New York well New York at the time or the East Coast um, holding the balance of power in terms of population however what this did is it gave slave states disproportionate power due to these things the three-fifth clause so slaves initially were considered three-fifths of a person so when they did the counting for the um, to draw up electoral maps uh, and to draw up the electoral college, because these states were seen as less populated than they were, they got more power in terms of the national distribution of seats. Number two, um, and especially in the House of Representatives, which is why we get the, f- which is honestly basically how we got Trump. Um, the Electoral College, which was also um, erected in the Constitution, gave slave states disproportionate influence over national affairs through the election of the president. And I think that that's why this whole idea of abolishing the electoral college kind of gets, it definitely gets my attention because at the end of the day, the Southern states are overrepresented. Mm -hmm. So 40 acres and a mule. Let me just say this. Mm -hmm. Black slaves were promised 40 acres to make a living as a free person colloquially known as 40 acres and a mule. Lincoln promised got assassinated by John Wilkes Booth. And guess who took over? Andrew Jackson, who reneged. 
and then we'll and then moved on to mow down a lot of native people but you know we'll we'll just you know put that One aside atrocity right at a time yes <laughs> so i think that if you get the chance please watch it it is a slog it's three hours you don't have to watch the whole thing but it definitely is a really good lesson in terms of how history a, is important and b how it sets the tone and sets in place the structure through which we all live and through which we're all rewarded and punished and all of this stuff. So um, this idea that black people are where we are because we don't work hard enough or we don't take enough individual responsibility is fucking horseshit. Okay, like a closing thought, though. Yes. For real. Um it these he, hearings in Congress are just sort of the beginning. It's really like a hearing to see if there should be an inquiry or an, what we would call here an inquiry, whatever the equivalent is there, um, to examine and see what is possible and what the scope of the issue would be. So it's very preliminary. Mm-hmm. But you go online and the fucking right wing assholes how they talk about reparations did is you see so what disgusting. Laura Ingram said I can't even okay but it's just so reprehensible and so gross and they this they love this issue it is such a um like lightning rod for bigotry to talk about reparations mm-hmm. and you know it's also really da- like it's it's creating like a lot of um, really dangerous rhetoric that's yeah. really going to rile people up. Um, so I think it's just as important that folks who believe in reparations not just take that thought for granted. Because mm-hmm. I think to a lot of us, it's instinct. Like, I, you know, I hear that and I'm like, yeah, of course. Like, why mm-hmm. the fuck not? And it just seems like such a common sense almost idea, I think, for a lot of progressives. But you need to be really vocal about it. Didn't they give reparations to, um, sorry, Japanese internment? camp i don't know or was that just an apology i can't remember maybe just an apology i don't think there were no and i just mean to say like you know it's really important that people are uh like take up this cause and you know are like visibly out there talking about it um and not and and being real allies on this issue for non-black folks to also speak on this um and because we can't leave the space kind of to be filled with these hate hate mongering fuckers who like are taking the the language like taking this opportunity to um to spread their hatred right you bring up a very good point which is we need to um we need to talk about this Mm -hmm. because if not i guess the collective um, discussion is just going to be mm-hmm. along the lines of just bigotry and drawing up yeah. all those stereotypes of the lazy black people, all those stereotypes. We're, like, basically, just it's just going to um, be taken up by these hateful people. Yeah. And then that's sure. going to be reported. Yeah. And it's going to be used as like a, a political wedge issue. And yeah. Try, you know, but and I think for the left, too often reparations have been just left as an intellectual exercise. Right. And there hasn't been a lot of 
concrete action or real discussion or activism around it in a in a tangible way mm-hmm. and i think like the time is definitely now um i think 11 of the democratic presidential nominee uh, candidates for the nomination are um in favor of exploring reparations i think we can make those positions a lot more radical than they mm-hmm. are by talking about it but just in general like you know taking this out of being an intellectual exercise and into like a real public policy um, issue and a voting issue and something that matters to people and has real con like is of real consequence um, is really important because right now it's it's just being used as um, you know to it's it's being capitalized on by hate mo- by like bigots right yeah so. well that's what's happening and um, what I find is that we we don't want to talk about something because it's too icky or whatever or, you know, we feel like we shouldn't be talking about it. And you know That's what? Some people, but I think there are a lot of non-black folks who are allies in a lot of other ways, but yeah. hear reparations and think, okay, cool. Like the work is getting done by someone eventually or like, yeah, I agree with it in principle, but then like don't do any heavy lifting. That's yes. my issue. Sorry, just to be more blunt. No, no, no. You be blunt. It's. I think it's awesome. You know what? It's awesome that I'm living in a time where there are congressional hearings about reparations for slavery. Like, motherfuck. Holy shit. I, I just... Now, they started. There were some back in 2007. And, and even before that, they happened intermittently from time to time. Yeah. Uh, so the last ones were in 2007. They didn't result in anything. And the bill, the same bill that's being debated now was shelved. Mm-hmm. So that's what I mean. Like, it's really easy to lose sight of this and uh-huh. like make it just like, uh, you know, uh, one thing that would be nice to have, but then no- not actually follow through on it. Fair. And. You know, we elected Barack Obama the year after. Not we, because like you know, but I like to pretend. Uh, <laughs> but like Barack Obama became, you know, the first black president the year after those congressional hearings, and then I think people got complacent. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? I yeah. don't know if that's just why. Obviously, also the house flipped, and well, the house like, flipped, there right? Was like there were a lot of other yeah. like, factors, but yeah. at the same time, like the conversation also stopped. It did. It did. It did. Which is why we're having it now. Um, I also want to say, too, that Canada is um, implicated. So um, one of the things I wanted to bring up was the Fugitive Slave Act of 1850, I believe. Um, So once once, um, the Underground Railroad was established, uh, you had a swell of... um, black (laughs) migrants I believe to Canada um, running from slavery some of them were sent back through basically state actions in Canada white people in Canada so white Canadians used to basically snitch on runaway slaves so that they could be sent back in fact I believe that somewhere along the Maritimes, either in Nova Scotia or New Brunswick or something like that, um, there was state action to organize white community members to patrol areas so that they could find slaves to send back. So Canada, fuck you. Okay, on to rant and receipts. Mm -hmm. 
with rant and receipts where we each bring something to rant about and the other <laughs> rants with us <laughs> so real show us all yes day. it's it is yeah. it is like you are correct girl <laughs> carry on oh okay cool uh so uh, you probably know that on uh doug Ford slashing spree one of the um, main victims has been legal aid Ontario legal aid budget uh, the pr- province's entire legal aid budget was cut by 30 percent uh, there was a new attorney general so we just mentioned there were a lot of shifts in cabinet so the new attorney general taking over from Carolyn Mulroney is Doug Downey um, but before he took took over just this last week you know, Carolyn Mulroney left him with a with a bit of a heady task she had a uh, sure the direction didn't just come from her it's definitely a a ford policy but mulrooney in defending the approach uh claimed that the move would ensure lower income ontarians continue to have access to justice that they need which is just the most bizarre thing in the world to imagine um some of the impacts of the legal aid cuts um are are most strongly felt in the criminal law area so it means that uh they've completely cut funding for private lawyers private criminal lawyers um who would receive what's called what are called legal aid certificates or funding for different parts of a of a criminal trial like a voucher yeah and, and so they they're compensated for but they're private lawyers so they're mm-hmm. not legal aid lawyers but they do legal aid work which is a, a significant portion of the work uh some criminal lawyers do yeah um and and a lot and th- specifically it's funding for bail hearings so a bail hearing is you know you've been arrested and charged and detained and you're in jail and the question is you know are you going to be held until your trial which can take years um, at least in in some cases, many many months at the very least. Um, or or can you have a bail hearing where they decide whether or not there are conditions and you can be conditionally released? Right. Um, those hearings are extremely important. Um, they you know there's a little bit of a prejudice if you're unsuccessful there, but at the very least, you are then uh detained. You've lost all of your freedoms, right? Uh, for a period of time without without trial. Um, which is actually a huge justice crisis in our country is that so many people are held on bail um, before their trials for, you know, many months, sometimes years. Um, and it, without having been found at fault for anything, it's it's pretty damning. And there are a lot of innocent people who who end up there. In fact, it's it's a majority of, of people uh, end up not having uh uh, who who end up in bail sometimes because they can't there's a, a amount that they have to pay for bail and and that's a huge issue and so you're saying that this is just not a U.S. issue no this happens here too um and so without because funding, we've been hearing about Rikers Island and totally stuff yeah, yeah, and, yeah and how and how especially um black and brown people are continuously being held without bail um as uh, and it seems to me that that's a circ that's circumventing some serious civil rights issues mm-hmm. yeah. and some serious constitutional issues too, but that's just me. I'm yeah, not no, a lawyer. For sure. There's know. a similar, similar crisis here and uh, we definitely don't talk about it as much. Uh, I'm not sure um, statistically like how bad necessarily it is, but it's pretty fucking bad. And frankly, anyone who is innocent and detained, um, 
you know, bef- without trial for extended period of time is is being wronged and has their charter rights violated. And, and you know, any day is too long. Um, and but can but, you tell people like why? So in other words, when you're being held without bail for months, you've lost your job. Yeah. You yeah. assume well, and it's your personal freedom, right? Yeah. So it's yeah. Yeah. So in addition to that, you've lost your job. You've it's essentially lost... the worst thing the state could do to you, yeah. right? I mean, you've you've severed your ties from like they're severing you from your community, from your life, from they've taken from away everything your else, right? So, yeah. um, but all of which to say, bail hearings are extremely important. The government sort of downplaying them and saying things like, you know, anyone can run a bail hearing. You just sort of show up, and they're saying that duty counsel can do it. So, duty counsel are legal aid lawyers who are at the courthouse who assist people in navigating the system, but right. they do not represent you they are not your lawyer they can give you on the fly advice but they're not running the hearing they can't gather evidence they can't prepare paperwork and um you know they're just there advising what will now presumably be self-represented people in the criminal justice system which is a really dangerous place to be yeah um and already duty counsel uh are extremely overworked yes and there's no um there's no funding going to hiring more duty counsel so it's kind of a bullshit argument that the government's making and you know you're seeing if you want to go on twitter and see what criminal what the legal twitter is talking about there are a lot of criminal lawyers who are detailing what the work is involved in in preparing for a bail hearing um, and, you know, they do things like find you a place to stay, make sure that you, you have someone um, that, you know, the like a place to start off, where to go and, and like getting you situated, um, making sure that you're, you know, abiding by your bail conditions, those sorts of things. It's not just what happens in the courtroom that day, but they are your representative. Right. And, and it's all very um it's important because any breaches of that then are, are very con- like have great consequences as well. Um, there's another angle to this as well. One of the, um, uh, so, and sorry, this is almost like a news item, but I'm, I think it's really important to talk about. Um, the other piece is that a number of legal aid clinics have also lost a considerable amount of their funding. One of these clinics is called the Parkdale Community Legal Services. You may have heard of it. They do a lot of really great work uh, advocating for workers' rights, advocating um, uh, against um, developers and ensuring accessible housing. They do a lot of tenant justice work, um, which, you know, we have a particular interest here on the pod. Mm -hmm. Um, So Parkdale lost 45% of their funding. Wow. Wow. And government says it's because they want to pay them the same as they pay other legal aid clinics. Well, other legal aid clinics are sorely underfunded and Parkdale rep- uh, does service a community that has considerable needs. Right. Um, so that's part of it. But the interesting thing uh, that really just made me so mad was the chair of Legal Aid Ontario. So the board chair for Legal Aid Ontario is Chris Harnick. Or sorry, Chris. How do I get Chris out of that? Charles Harnick. Charles Harnick, uh, chair of Legal Aid Ontario, was appointed last year. Um, he formally was a cabinet minister in Mike Harris's progressive gov- conservative government oh in the my 90s. God. And uh, sorry, he was appointed in this year, April this year, by the uh, Ford government. Uh, he has been um, in the past, in those intervening years, uh, and currently his job is actually as a lobbyist uh, for uh, for developers. Uh, that's his uh, that's his M.O. And one of his other clients, uh, more recent clients is Airbnb. 
Um, what? Who, uh, you know, a company uh, that's beloved by develop by property owners, making it possible, uh, you know, to, for them to kind of get around landlord tenant rights and and all of that. Yeah, yeah. Um, and it's sucking up all of the. There was something in the in the star. Yeah, something thirty percent of housing is lost to Airbnb. To Airbnb. Yeah. So think about that when you're wondering about why property. Totally. Is, is is the price how, it is. Yeah, and where, why we have a housing same, crisis. Actually, the same thing is happening with uh, in Montreal with... Sorry, I'm... De- no, just, okay. get, just let me say... Yeah, um, in Montreal, where... So Microsoft is planning like an AI campus or institute or something, or they're building that in Montreal somewhere. And apparently, of course, house prices have jumped, but part of the reason is Airbnb. Mm-hmm. Anyway, go on. No, no, for sure. Um, so one of his other clients is West Hill Construction Company. It's a major Toronto landlord. Um, it's uh, a This sub- is the legal aid guy? This is the guy who's the chair of Legal Aid Ontario as appointed by Doug Ford. Um, oh, and so this is essentially a guy who works for landlords, works for developers, works for Airbnb, who's undermining one of the the largest, most reputable clinics in the country and specifically in Ontario that do impact. One of their main things is tenant rights, tenant uh, advocacy, especially in Parkdale, which is an area that's uh, a part of Toronto that's very quickly gentrifying. Um, so there's a lot of um, activism happening now around Parkdale. There's oh, a group called why. Parkdale Organize, um, trying to do some fundraising, trying to preserve some of the work that they have. Uh, Parkdale's had to move out of their current um, place to find a place with lower rent so they, they can keep operating as best they can. But they lost a million dollars out of their budget, which is wow. huge, right? That's, That's 45% of their funding. Holy um, fuck. And, you know, like this guy, Charles Harnick, sounds like a fucking cartoon villain like works for developers by day and at night he works for the legal aid ontario like that's so fucked up but this is the kind of shit that the ford government is doing and these are the like it's not just who's in cabinet that matters it's all of these appointments that matter it's everywhere down the chain it's going to be a long time till we're able to reverse some of the effects of what he's doing on top of which especially because uh, he's slashing the budgets of all the great community organizations that are doing the work of challenging uh, these these fuckers who have now actually just been given uh, an even greater platform to do their misdeeds. So, yeah, that's uh, that's Morant. The look on my face right now <laughs> is like this is a audio medium. <laughs> this oh is not working, gosh, Erica. I know. I just, I just. So most of. Parkdale Legal Aid is cri- is it criminal or it's a, it's a mix of or anything. is it a mix of, of yeah. tenant and, and tenant stuff? Uh, some I think they do immigration but tenant rights is one of is their big thing. I'm Parkdale. trying to connect the dots is basically where I'm going. That's oh this no is I mean why. there are cuts everywhere right yeah so there are two separate points one oh. is Legal Aid Ontario made massive cuts right. across the board to who gets legal aid certificates so that harmed a lot of people doing a lot of different types of work, including at clinics across the country, but also private lawyers who do that work. So that affects criminal, the criminal er- law area is in a, in a more um, perverse degree just because of the prejudice to the individuals who are now not getting representation. Not only that, think about the quality of representation for those individuals. Well, they're not getting representation. They're getting duty counsel advice, which is not representation, right? So that's not even the same thing. Um, And then 
a separate story. So is the Parkdale Clinic issue, which is so Legal Aid Ontario also made this decision to cut, make cuts from all of the clinics to varying degrees. Parkdale received the a disproportionate cut. And then irony of ironies, you know, the chair of Legal Aid Ontario who made the decision is, of course, none other than a BFF of all the developers. Sorry, that was a much clearer way. Does does Parkdale do more tenant landlord? Like, is that... It's just there's a huge fight in that part of Toronto with developers. Okay. And so if you follow some of the work that Parkdale has been doing, um, they've been, like, very strong in, chal- in challenging um, landlords and um, landlords who have been trying to carry out you know evictions and mass evictions of, of uh, low-income tenants due to because Parkdale's gentrifying basically yeah in large part that's why and then developers want bears. that land to build to build on yeah and and, and landlords right the landlords who are want to flip the flip right. the units and make right. them higher rent and whatever right. else right 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 okay so those are the dots I wanted to get I just want to provide like a narrative in terms of why Parkdale specially was chosen for disproportionate cuts and they're also very how that relates to the leadership they're also very well renowned um, in terms of what they do they you know they're a clinic that has um, uh, does a lot of advocacy on behalf of workers as well. They appear, you know, in, in every government consultation, they are making uh, their work known. Um, they are involved in legal challenges of all kinds. Um, they're ex- they're considered, you know, the, the lawyers who work there are considered, um, you know, experts in their, in their field. They're all very well regarded. Um, and, you know, it's, it's, uh, like it's a pillar of the legal community to have Parkdale clinic in and of itself. Right. Um, you know, I think a lot of people think of clinic work and legal aid um, as being sort of second secondary or second tier kind of law. It's really not. I mean, these people are practicing in the front lines um, and they also do a lot of community um, in, community work in general. Um, it's, work that's client directed at clients client driven um there's a lot of activism that and activists that work with parkdale clinic as well um so they i think you know parkdale gets it they do a lot of advocacy work right so it's not just we're going to appear at the landlord and tenant tribunal but we are also going to advocate for changes to the law we're also going to march in in the streets we're also going like it is this like you know it's just um they're they're really powerful in that way in terms of creating community um and and in that sense they are a threat to landlords and they're a threat to to um the real estate and like you know uh, folks who are folks like charles harnick right like they're like this is you could see the fight like again it's kind of cartoonish to imagine this like you know ceo of a lobbying firm or whatever the fuck he was a former minister who you know is now it's the oligarchy, like it's just man. Wild. It's it's the oligarchy just just dressed up yeah. as democracy. Yeah, and and I mean it, all the things you hear too uh, about uh, like the, the, the government cons- spin has been such bullshit. You know, they're saying well, legal Parkdale gets more funding than other clinics on a per capita basis, and you know it, and, and they're trying to pick clinics against each other. 
Um, fortunately, a lot, there are a lot of clinics who who are you know coming to this aid of one another, and and it's all very tied, and mm-hmm. you know it's not like well that's what but they're trying to sell does, you there's right? this limited pie, and yeah. these guys are getting a bigger chunk, so we reduce their budget, but actually they slash budgets across the board, like you know no one's. No one's buying what the government is selling, but it, yeah. it's funny to see what they're trying to do to defend their position. Well, I think, you know, um, what what we're just seeing more and more consolidation of power and a destruction of the welfare state. That's literally, I feel, what everything points to, mm-hmm. period. Anyway, um, I feel like... Uh, this is one to watch, um, especially since especially since it does have I feel like this radiates out of gentrification issues. Mm-hmm. Um, and on some way in the future, like I like gentrification is a truly, truly destructive force. Let's put it that way. Anyway, um, so my rant and receipts um has to do with uh, Theresa May's um, um, attempt at a glow up and basically uh, recast herself as somebody who gives a shit. So I find that funny. Anyway, and I'll tell you how. On Saturday, so yesterday, um, Britain, through to meet Theresa May, honored members of what they called the Windrush generation. So people from the Caribbean who were encouraged to migrate to Britain to help the country rebuild after World War II. Now, I just want to I just want to note that that they were encouraged and invited to the UK to rebuild the UK. And so this actually kind of harkens back to the reparations discussion we had earlier in the episode um so on saturday uh theresa may declared the first national windrush day and announced that a memorial to the windrush generation will be built at waterloo station where many immigrants are first arrived in london after docking at southampton um theresa may called the occasion a quote an annual opportunity to remember the hard work and sacrifice of the Windrush generation. But the tribute on Saturday was overshadowed by the criticism of the government's immigration policy and by the lingering effects of clampdowns on members of the Windrush generation. So Theresa May posted a video on Twitter. Um, I'm, I, the dragging that took place warmed my heart. And if you remember a few episodes back, we talked about Theresa May's, um, her uh, resignation and her tears. And um, we listed some of the policies that she enacted that were draconian and an attempt to appease the Brexiters and the draconian members of her party. This is David Cameron's party, who Amy has told us was compensated for slavery as a slave owner. So think about that in terms of class and society and wealth. Okay, but that's a digression. So 
for to refresh your memory. Theresa May championed a hostile environment policy intended to make life in the country difficult for undocumented migrants and to dissuade potential arrivals. Many of the people from the Windrush generation were undocumented generally because of um, because they were born in the colonies and they held British citizenship under the laws in force at that time and were entitled to live and work in Britain. But those people who could not prove that they arrived before 1973, lost jobs, were denied medical care, were evicted or detained, and even threatened with deportation. And these are the people who came from the British colonies, the West Indian colonies, in 1948 at the invitation of the government to fulfill a post-war labor shortage. So um, one of Richard Stewart, who was from that generation, died last week because the British government refused to give him medical care Mm. for his cancer. (sighs) So upsetting. The Joint Joint Council for the Welfare of Immigrants said in a message on Twitter, the Windrush scandal would have stayed a secret without the bravery of those who spoke out uh, about the disgraceful way our government has treated them. Um, on Saturday, Sadiq Khan, the member, the mayor of London, posted a video message on Twitter in which he called out the disgraceful treatment of the Windrush generation, saying it will go down as one of the most shameful episodes in our history. And I just want to create sort of like a context around this and just want to say in Canada this week, Justin Trudeau decided to get on his high horse for reasons unknown, because nobody asked him shit, and basically told Muslims that they should make themselves more amenable or more useful to the conservative party so that they'll get their rights heard. What the fuck? Which is also really ignorant because the conservatives uh, do have the respect of some Muslim communities and actually like solicit their votes all the time. That hasn't stopped them from saying also Islamophobic things in other spaces and to other people and about other Muslims, right? So it's like othering like one class of immigrant against the other. You guys got in on the right pretenses. The new immigrants aren't like you. You're better than them. And they pander to that. That's such exactly bullshit. what it's they like do. It's like Jason Kennedy. is Jason Kennedy. Jason I Kennedy. I do the same thing. <laughs> I'm also a little... I've got elastics now on my braces. It's like a, I can't even... Um, <laughs> but Jason Kenny is, you know... In That's a mosque every other day. Like, it's yeah. not like he's, like, not welcome in those spaces. And it's not like he doesn't politic in those spaces. But that does... You know, there are a lot of people who do a lot of politicking that are so racist as fuck. So, yeah. And the fact is, it's very victim blaming me to be like, oh, make yourself more relevant uh, and no, make your voices heard to the conservatives so they don't hate monger you. It's like, uh, yeah, OK, cool. Thanks. 
Why is it that we must make ourselves available for people to use us? What the? Yeah. yeah. Because that's exactly what Britain did. They used them and then they threw them away. And the fact is, is that Amber, Amber, her, Amber Rudd, who was the um, home secretary at the time, apparently, you know, took her knocks and resigned as home secretary. But she's still there. Mm. These architects are still there. And, you know, Britain, especially, you know, chief colonizer Britain. Um, we need to start talking about how minorities are used to build these countries and then thrown away when it's politically convenient. Mm -hmm. That's exactly like the using of minorities as props or as labor and as labor is exactly the way that hiring works. I saw there was a study recently um, on that I saw that talked about um, black and brown employment. So when an economy gets good, Mm -hmm. does well, white people get hired first and then black and brown people I hired after them to essentially be there for lack of a better word to be in service to these people. Like that's today is my point. Mm -hmm. So this idea that these things are gone and passed and we don't have to worry about them is just all bullshit. And fuck Theresa May and the horse she rode in on because at the end of the day, she's no victim here. She just got outmaneuvered by her party. That's the only thing that happened. But she is just as bad as they are. And at least... I shed no tears for her whatsoever. And the way we treat migrants, the way we've always treated migrants, especially migrants of color, is, is you know, it's not just about kids in cages. It's a long-held belief mm-hmm. that we should make ourselves be servants to white people. And that's my piece. Cool. Any thoughts? I mean, yeah, you knocked it out of the park. You don't, <laughs> you don't think we have to debate at nauseum whether uh, <laughs> kids whether in ri- cages is a bad thing? Or... I, know. I know. Exactly. You can't use the word slavery every other day because it really downplays the true atrocities of slavery, which I don't care about except when it's politically expedient for me to use it as an analogy. To... To, to gaslight you. To gaslight you. Yeah. <laughs> Fucking Stephen King is on about, uh, you know, getting Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez to go visit Auschwitz because it really changed his life. And Why does Stephen King think she needs... Why doesn't he tell that to Mitch McConnell or one well, of them? But he's he also, like, Captain Bigotry, so, like... Stephen King and trying it, to reinvent himself as some, like as some civil rights era nonsense is a joke to me. It's a joke. This reinvention of... I've seen Stephen King and people retweet. I'm like, why are you retweeting this motherfucker? Mm-hmm. What the fuck? Yeah. And and these people in positions of power who think that they could just say something and they're so offended and they're so... Wasn't this the same Stephen King who was surprised that racism still happens? Mm-hmm. Okay. 
but no thanks. And this is why um, I don't need Stephen King or Justin Trudeau or any of them to speak for me. Sorry, guys. I have bad news. This is our last episode for the summer uh, because we want to enjoy ours. So we will return in September after Labor Day. We haven't decided when, but we'll let you know. And uh, right in time for this election that we have. In the meantime, you can always check us out. Facebook.com forward slash Bad and B podcast. Twitter at Bad and Bitchy. Instagram at Bad and Bitchy pod. Email us Bad and B pod at gmail.com. Our Patreon is Patreon.com forward slash Bad and Bitchy. We have merch at Redbubble, redbubble.com slash people slash bad and bitchy. Now, this is the thing. Uh, We'll let you know (laughs) when we'll come back. But also, um, we're still going to write our regular column in the Hill Times. Uh, It comes out on Wednesdays. And we'll share it on the website uh, as well. So if you don't have access to the paywall, um, we'll, we'll hook you up down the line. Yeah, because I'm assuming that that's not a cheap subscription. And um, I'm pretty sure that, you know, not only the subscribers want to hear what we have to say. So um, we'll make it accessible for you over the summer uh, and beyond, of course. So in that in that frame, um, you guys have been great. Thank you for coming out and we'll see you in the fall. Bye. Bye. Yesterday, when asked about reparations, Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell offered a familiar reply. America should not be held liable for something that happened 150 years ago, since none of us currently alive are responsible. This rebuttal proffers a strange theory of governance, that American accounts are somehow bound by the lifetime of its generations. But well into this century, the United States was still paying out pensions to the heirs of Civil War soldiers. We honor treaties that date back some 200 years, despite no one being alive who signed those treaties. Many of us would love to be taxed for the things we are solely and individually responsible for. But we are American citizens, and thus bound to a collective enterprise that extends beyond our individual and personal reach. It would seem ridiculous to dispute invocations of the founders or the greatest generation on the basis of a lack of membership in either group. We recognize our lineage as a generational trust, as inheritance. And the real dilemma posed by reparations is just that, a dilemma of inheritance. It is impossible to imagine America without the inheritance of slavery. As historian Ed Baptist has written, enslavement, quote, shaped every crucial aspect of the economy and politics of America, so that by 1836, more than 600 million, 
almost half of the economic activity in the United States derived directly or indirectly from the cotton produced by the million-odd slaves. By the time the enslaved were emancipated, they comprised the largest single asset in America, $3 billion in 1860 dollars, more than all the other assets in the country combined. The method of cultivating this asset was neither gentle cajoling nor persuasion, but torture, rape, and child trafficking. Enslavement reigned for 250 years on these shores. When it ended, this country could have extended its hollowed principles, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness to all regardless of color. But America had other principles in mind. And so for a century after the Civil War, black people were subjected to a relentless campaign of terror, a campaign that extended well into the lifetime of Majority Leader McConnell. It is tempting to divorce this modern campaign of terror, of plunder, from enslavement. But the logic of enslavement, of white supremacy, respects no such borders. And the god of bondage was lustful and begat many heirs, coup d'etats and convict leasing, vagrancy laws and debt peonage, redlining and racist GI bills, poll taxes and state-sponsored state terrorism. We grant that Mr. McConnell was not alive for Appomattox, but he was alive for the electrocution of George Stinney. He was alive for the blinding of Isaac Woodward. He was alive to witness kleptocracy in his native Alabama and a regime premised on electoral theft. Majority Leader McConnell cited civil rights legislation yesterday, as well he should, because he was alive to witness the harassment, jailing, and betrayal of those responsible for that legislation by a government sworn to protect them. He was alive for the redlining of Chicago and the looting of black homeowners of some $4 billion. Victims of that plunder are very much alive today. I am sure they'd love a word with the majority leader. What they know, what this committee must know, is that while emancipation dead bolted the door against the bandits of America, Jim Crow wedged the windows wide open. And that is the thing about Senator McConnell's something. It was 150 years ago, and it was right now. The typical black family in this country has one-tenth the wealth of the typical white family. Black women die in childbirth at four times the rate of white women. And there is, of course, the shame of this land of the free, boasting the largest prison population on the planet, of which the descendants of the enslaved make up the largest share. The matter of reparations is one of making amends and direct redress, but it is also a question of citizenship. In H.R. 40, this body has a chance to both make good on its 2009 apology for enslavement and reject fair-weather patriotism, to say that a nation is both its credits and its debits, that if Thomas Jefferson matters, so does Sally Hemings, that if D-Day matters, so does Black Wall Street, that if Valley Forge matters, so does Fort Pillow, because the question really is not whether we will be tied to the somethings of our past, but whether we are courageous enough to be tied to the whole of them. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Coates. Next witness is Mr. Danny Glover.